This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might be surprised to learn the FBI has opened more than two dozen grand jury investigations this year alone related to federal contracting fraud. Its procurement collusion strike force is using some up-to-date techniques like data mining. For contractors, honest ones, that is, it all means the need for strong compliance programs. Here with more from the law firm Perkins Coie, partner John Jacobs. Mr. Jacobs, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And senior counsel Alex Canazares. Mr. Canazares, good to have you in. Great to be with you. And let's begin at the beginning here and tell me a little bit about this phenomenon of contracting fraud. Is this mostly something that happens with collusion among contractors or is it something that happens between the government and contractors as a rule. Yeah, the kind of fraud we're talking about here, Tom, is contractor to contractor collusion. So what the strike force is focusing on is bid rigging, price fixing, or market allocation among contractors who are bidding for federal contracts. They will get together beforehand and they will decide who is going to win a particular bid. The one who's going to submit a higher or complementary bid will know what the prearranged winner is going to bid. And so it's all set up so competition is eliminated. The agency, the federal government, is not involved. So this is very different than, say, kickbacks to federal contractors in order to steer contracts a certain way. Sure. And then I guess for the contractors involved, the ones who agree to, quote, lose, then get some sort of consideration, I guess, from the winners in general? They do. Uh, You know, these bid rigging conspiracies are often set up so that if Alex and I are the two natural bidders for a contract, we'll get together and I'll say, Alex, let me have this one. Please bid above this certain price. And the next one's yours. And I guess the question is, how often does this happen? I mean, there's a couple of dozen out of what? 15, 20,000 contracting actions a year and 2,000 of them roughly are protested. I mean, this is a big business. So I guess I'm asking, in general, is the system in the United States corruption-free with exceptions, or is it tend to be maybe the non-corrupt ones are the exceptions? According to the FBI, which issued a report in March of this year, this is a significant issue. They cite a study that says that about 20% of procurement is tainted by some sort of bid rigging. And whether or not that study is true, if you think about $500 billion plus of federal procurement activity every year, this is something that is going to have a significant impact. And this procurement collusion strike force recognizes that and kind of renews the focus that the law enforcement community has. By the way, your number is a little out of date. During the pandemic, it was more like $639 billion. So there's a lot of room for collusion, I guess, in drug companies and mask companies or whatever. And is it generally more on, to the extent we know, on the DOD side or the civilian side? Well, it's really everything. I mean, I think the areas of focus for this particular interagency task force include defense. There was just another indictment announced last week in the defense context, but also healthcare. And you mentioned the pandemic. And I think the significant increase in federal spending in response to the pandemic heightens the concern. And it's not specific to COVID, but if you think about infrastructure, that's another area I think we'll we'll see renewed focus on, especially with talks underway about increased spending on transportation and infrastructure. But really, it's not agency-specific. It's not just DOD. These are many, many law enforcement agencies and inspectors general in different agencies that are now on heightened alert for this issue. And John, you did have experience in the Justice Department earlier in your career. Is there any clue that a contracting officer can discern that might tip him or her off that eh, I don't something's unkosher going on here? 
Yes, and actually the antitrust division as a part of this new initiative has published the so-called red flags of collusion on their website. And the red flags are designed for contracting officers to know what to look for. It's not completely comprehensive. But some of the examples are, you know, are there a small number of bidders for this particular kind of contract? Because obviously it's easier to collude if you don't have a large number. Are there similar-looking bid proposals? Is there similar handwriting, similar typographical errors? Does it look like the different bids were prepared by the same person? Because believe it or not, sometimes these conspirators aren't careful enough, and uh, it's very suspicious when you lay them all out on the table. And then take a look at the patterns, not only the prices, but the patterns of winning. As I said before, the way these bid-rigging conspiracies usually work is if Alex and I are supposedly competing, we're rotating. And so if it looks like Alex is winning about 50 percent, I'm winning about 50 percent, that's a red flag. Sounds like high school construction contract. We're speaking with John Jacobs and Alex Canizares. They are partner and senior counsel at the law firm Perkins Cooey. And tell us more about the FBI task force. It's an interagency affair. Who's involved and maybe a little bit about the data mining and data experts they've gotten on board? Well, it's not just the FBI. It's actually led by the antitrust division within the Department of Justice. FBI is a principal law enforcement agency that's involved. But you've actually got a total of 29 either U.S attorney's offices or agencies, and that includes the inspectors general who already have their own oversight function looking for this sort of conduct. I do want to mention one aspect of the red flags, which is important here too, which is contracting officers that conduct competitive procurements are already required by statute and regulation to be on the lookout for this sort of antitrust activity. And so when they are reviewing contract proposals and a procurement, they're already supposed to notify the Department of Justice for this sort of thing. What this particular task force does is really two things. One is bring new cases, and the other part is really bring about more awareness. You know, educate people and train people, and they've done a significant amount of training in that regard. All right, so let's get to some of the advice your law firm has put forth for contractors that don't want to be seen as doing this. And also, I guess there's the situation where it could occur because of some employees, but you can protect the corporation even if those people get punished and go to jail or somehow. So what should contractors do to stay out of this? Yeah, the very first thing I would advise is to update your compliance program. That is particularly important for avoiding any kind of antitrust offense and particularly recently given some DOJ guidance. And there's at least a couple of reasons for this. I'll mention the so-called leniency program, and then, Alex, maybe you can describe the recent availability of deferred prosecution agreements that are available to those with otherwise effective compliance programs. So the antitrust division has a leniency program. And what that is is if you are the very first individual or company to notify the antitrust division of a conspiracy that it has not heard about before, you get complete immunity. You will not be charged. You won't be fined. Your executives won't go to jail. Remember, the um, antitrust laws do involve jail terms, potentially, for executives that participate in this activity. Now, you're still going to have to cooperate, and that can be quite an effort. You're going to have to hire a lawyer, unfortunately. You're going to have to proffer your facts of your internal investigation. You're going to have to produce documents and make your executives available for an interview with the criminal prosecutors. But it's also available only for the first to contact the DOJ. There is a race for leniency, so it's important if you see something right away, say something. Is there, by the way, any key TAM possibility for someone that might be lower down in the company that blows the whistle on this? There absolutely is. And some of my criminal cases started with a key TAM complaint. 
Got it. Okay. And what else? Well, one of the things that contractors can really do to kind of mitigate the risk of this sort of uh, enforcement activity is to, as John says, build a robust compliance program, have those internal controls in place, but also be specifically aware of the risks that the DOJ is looking at. Now, these same red flags of collusion are things that companies within their own company can sensitize their employees to. That's the procurement folks, that's the people who are doing the business development and that sort of thing. And it also means having a very specific reporting mechanism. So if people see something, they can bring it to the attention of the appropriate person. The False Claims Act, in terms of QUITAM, is another aspect of this. It's not particularly within the purview of this program, but it's certainly reasonable to expect that if people are identifying potential fraudulent activity, that could result in a False Claims Act matter. All right, and a couple of lightning round questions here at the end. Does this tend to be, as far as you can tell, more in the services or in the products acquisition area? I would say it's not limited to either one. I think I the, the areas that we're looking at now in terms of recent announcements, we had one very recently in the infrastructure sector that was more service-oriented. But really, I think there's likely to be cases on both sides of that fence. And the second question is more and more contracting dollars are going through government-wide acquisition contracts as or GWACs as task orders as opposed to full and open. And so is it more an occurrence in full and open competition, or do you find it in the GWAC task orders also? It's an interesting question. I don't think it's off the table in terms of a GWAC context. I mean, as you say, there are situations, and it's not limited to the GWACs, but where sole source contracting is perfectly permissible. The concern in this particular area is where competition is required. And I think that's where companies, particularly if they're engaged in teaming arrangements, need to be very sensitized to what the risks are. Alex Canizares is senior counsel at the law firm Perkins Coey. Thanks so much. Thank you. And John Jacobs is a partner there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented 
terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most 
And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. But well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. 
I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The Employee Retention Credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee. And now, more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible. And there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. So there's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses. So don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free 5-minute questionnaire at RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds with an S, Pro.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.